morning. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Riverstone. Um, if I've not met you, I'd love to shake your hand. Uh, we are in a series uh, called Formed by the Gospel. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, I want to invite you into two things. Uh, number one, we have free, uh, what we're just calling spiritual formation journals uh, in the cafe. Uh, writing down what I think God might be saying to me has been instrumental, uh, primarily in my ability to follow through on the things that I feel uh, God's talking to me about. I am prone to forget things. Um, uh, maybe you aren't prone to forget things, uh, but I found the discipline of writing down things essential uh, to my own maturity. Um, and I'd encourage you to grab one of those journals. Now, if it's going to sit in the floorboard of your card, car, don't worry about it. Let someone else grab it. Uh, but uh, they can be a good instrument. And the second thing I want to invite you into before we get into the um, text today, um, parts of the text, is uh, every Sunday, um, people from this church gather in this room at 9.45 to pray for you. Uh, to pray for this community, to pray for what we do here. And I just want to extend that invitation to you. Uh, it's a fantastic time, man. Come get before the Lord and just uh, intercede uh, for what's going on in our lives. Uh, have some coffee afterward and then come to church. It's a great time. So, so come join us if you should feel so inclined. So this is week three, uh, formed by the gospel. And the whole premise of this series is to combat a misunderstanding about the nature of the gospel. And that misunderstanding that we're trying to combat is that the truths of the gospel are once and done. That's the misunderstanding. So you might have grown up uh, going to church and feeling that the gospel is a thing that kind of gets you in the door and then you move on from that stuff, right, to, to other things. But that's clearly not how the writers of the New Testament thought about the gospel. Because the first week what we said and what we pointed out to you is that what you have in the New Testament is people who had already heard the gospel getting the gospel preached to them over and over and over again. And we just pointed out in the New Testament where you see this. These people already heard the gospel, getting the gospel preached to them. It's the, it seems that the writers of the New Testament think that the gospel is to have an ongoing, formative, powerful effect in your life. Not just to get you in the door, but to get you down the road, through the finish line. Like the whole thing is supposed to be catalyzed and sustained by this story. This truth about God, what he's done, right? The early followers of Jesus seem to think the impact of the gospel, that gospel, you know, that thing you grew up when they talked about, you know, all that stuff. They thought that story was so comprehensive, so expansive in his impact, they would use images like it brought me back from the dead. They would use images like I was blind, but now I can see. I was lame but now I can walk. Those are the images. The, the New Testament guys, read the book, man. They're literally breaking the bounds of language to try to explain to you the vitality of life that God wants to offer us in the gospel. It was so, I mean, it was like an atomic bomb went off in their life and it just redesigned everything in the interior of their heart. And they're just breaking the bounds of language to get that impact. Or as Dallas Willard put it, the gospel, the truth of Jesus, y'all, Jesus is like when in the middle of the century, in the middle of the 19th century, in the middle of the United States, the electric grid made its way across the plains of America. The electric grid, the infrastructure of electricity, right? So you, 1930s, 40s, 50s, you have these farms, never had electricity. And all of a sudden, here comes electricity, this new resource in which they now had to reorient their entire life around a power they didn't have before. That's what it's like to become a Christian. You should try it. It's, a, it's like a brand new resource has come to your fingertips that you can access now, something you could never do on your own 
right? Dallas Willard compares it to, it's like, it's like humanity 2.0. It's like the next thing. Jesus, the impact Jesus longs to have in your life is like that. Now just compare that to your experience. Like you're bored right now, huh? Just, <laughs> bless you. Huh? Compare that to your experience of Jesus. What if you are experiencing a Polaroid instead of the real person? What if you have a silhouette of what he's supposed to do? I don't know. You've never seen the man himself. What if you've just experienced Christians? What if you've just experienced church services and sermons? God help you. Never Jesus himself. Because there's something. You have a, this is what happens in America, man. This is what happens in all Christianity and religion, right? We have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. Hmm? Has no impact in your life. Doesn't do anything. You go, I mean, maybe you go to heaven when you die, right? And most of us have an understanding of the gospel like that. I'm not trying to like judge you. I'm just saying it's your understanding of the gospel doesn't impact your life. It's not like electricity came to you when you were living in the dark. Some, it's not like that, right? And, that, and yet that is the picture that we're giving. Death to life, okay? So let's move on, um, get to the actual series. What we're trying to say, all right, is that if we are going to grow, y'all, if you are going to grow, if you are going to mature, Maturity is optional. We say that a lot around here. If you are going to mature, if you're going to grow into who Christ has ordained you since the beginning of time to be, the kind of person that impacted people around you, it is going to be by the truths of the gospel. It's not going to be by some secondary level thing happening. And you know what I mean? Like it's these simple truths that either land on you and transform you or land on what the Bible is going to call, the Bible is going to call us a hard ground, right? Rock, path, gets nibbled up by the birds, People trample over it. It doesn't have the impact that it's supposed to have on you, right? And that, if the difference is the Holy Spirit, right? The gospel is not just the door, y'all. It is the means of our sanctification. Or as Galatians, as Paul and Galatians put it, we don't perfect by the flesh what was begun by the Spirit, okay? We don't move on from, we don't move on from it. It's saturating our souls. It's desaturating of our souls that transforms us. Or you could say it this way. We aren't just saved by the gospel. We are continually formed by it. That's it. 2 Corinthians 3 is going to say, it is by beholding, by looking at, gazing at the glory of the Lord that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, right? The gospel isn't once and done. So it just makes sense that we, from time to time, sit with these truths, this narrative, this story, and figure out what on earth it means for us. And what we said last week is it starts, the gospel does not start with sin, right? What we said last week, the gospel starts with good creation. It's called paradise, Eden, right? The story of the gospel starts with perfection, not with sin. It starts with perfect physical, spiritual, material existence. Perfect existence, right? The gospel starts with God creating all of creation and calling it good. And then he crowns creation with, his, uh, with the glory of himself, and he calls it man. He says, you are my image. And he says, very good, right? Read the, read the narrative. Saves that for last, right? Saves that for man, right? And, and what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is a God of unimaginable power giving order to chaos. It says he broods over the water. He orders day and night. He orders the natural rhythm of creation for what? Read the text for human flourishing. 
for human flourishing. It's for us, right? And humanity in the Garden of Eden is fully alive in his presence, right? Naked and unashamed is what it's getting at. It's the representative ideal for what we all long for to be fully known and be fully loved, fully vulnerable and fully accepted. That's naked and unashamed. That's what it's getting at, right? And if you look at, so interesting, man, if you look at other creation stories like the Babylonian narrative or the uh, Greek narrative of how things came into existence, those stories are full of violence and gore and aggression that reflected their own experience of survival. Are you living in the, whatever, I mean, sixth century BC and you're Existence is violence in nature, like things kill you, right? And so their story of creation reflected that violence. But the God of the Hebrews creates a cosmos. Now, in fact, let me just tell you one, okay, since we're talking about it. Murdoch in the Babylonian account, right? Murdoch, this deity who's born of this other deity, rips the deity's mouth open that birthed him and made heaven and earth out of that deity's carcass. Crazy, right? All these other creation accounts have this violence, survivalist, gore thing. But the God of the Hebrews, guess what he creates the cosmos out of? Delight. The God of the Hebrews creates the cosmos out of joy, right? And in Proverbs 8, it's another, Proverbs 8 is an account of creation. And it says that wisdom was delighting continually with him as he created the world, right? That's what the gospel starts with. The gospel, God creates all things. And then mankind as his ruler representative. Think about that. He creates man as his ruler representative over the goodness of creation. Ruler representative? Really? Yes. As soon as God starts creating, he begins to delegate authority. Go back and read it. Genesis 1:26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over everything. The birds, the air, the cattle, all the earth, that's Genesis, and the chapter goes on. He says, every living thing is theirs. Every tree, every plant, every beast, all the earth, every, some form of every or all is in those five verses 11 times. What is it? He's giving us everything. God makes it, calls it good, and says, here you go. It's yours. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a whole lot. It means, number one, that me and you were created to rule and reign all of creation as the image of God. We were meant to be his ruler representatives, imaging who he is to the animals, to the earth, to each other, right? Mean, what does that mean? Well, it means you're supposed to cultivate everything for human flourishing, right? Everything is supposed to be cultivated now so that humans can flourish. And he says, now go do, go do what I did. You guys go do that now. Order things for human flourishing. Like it's yours. Take it over, right? Bring order where there was chaos, right? And the second thing, what does that mean? That he gave it to us all, everything, all of it gave it to us. Well, y'all, isn't our tendency to rage against God when we look around and see a desperately broken world? Isn't that our tendency? When you see suffering and death and injustice and hatred and war and racism and systematic oppression, don't we rage out against God? Don't we put God on the stand and say, give it a count, man. How do you figure all this stuff? You made this. Things are wrong around here, huh? Like terribly wrong. And we immediately demand that God give an account for what he's made. We do. We do, guys. It's even in your own life. You get a flat tire and you're like, come on, right? I mean, the smallest things, Christian or not, right? We are continually, <laughs> we are continually looking for a cosmic scapegoat. For every bit of suffering we may have to endure. I mean, if you don't believe me, just watch the news for five minutes, right? Who's to blame around here, right? Everyone's looking for someone to blame, right? But do you see the cosmic paradigm that's happening in Genesis 1 that's being laid out for us? 
God made it. And then he gives it all to you. He says, look, just like the earth was in Genesis 1, formless and void. That, that, that Hebrew there is tohu vavohu. It means wild and waste. Just like he brooded over the wild waste and gave order to it. Now you give order to the wilderness for human flourishing, right? Just like he created life, you create life. It's called having babies. <laughs> huh? That's crazy, right? And now, now cultivate the land so that those babies can flourish. Make, make the world. The mandate of Genesis 1 is to sustain Eden. Sustain it. It's perfect. It's yours. Now, create like I've created and, and sustain perfection for all of humanity to flourish, right? He literally gives it to us all. He says, use your freedom, your dignity, your choice that I've given you. Use that freedom now to go about ruling the gift of creation for me. And it's very clear, y'all. It's very clear. It means that it's me and you that have to give an account to God for the state of creation. Not God give an account to us. That's what it means. He gave it to us. All of it. Every bit of it. He's not on the stand to account for the suffering of the world. We are. That is the paradigm of Genesis 1. We miss this a whole lot, don't we? It's very common in the imagination of Christians and non-alike that suffering is God's fault. But he would look at us and say, I gave this to you. I gave it to you, all of it. Every, every all, 11 times in five verses, all of it. Every plant, every tree, all the earth, given as gift to us. In the explicit gospel, Matt Chandler says, we tend to act like it's us that's good and God that's fallen. But scripture makes it clear humanity was entrusted with the goodness of creation. And we can't even get three chapters in without knocking the whole thing out of whack. Right? And Proverbs 19.3 says, man, people, man, y'all, you ruin your lives by your own foolishness. And then you rage out at God. That's his creation. This is the story of all of life. We've ruined it by our own wickedness, by our own depravity. And we raise our fists at the person who gave it to us in perfect functioning order. Say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to allow a world with suffering? Huh? To allow the Holocaust, nuclear bombs. Who do you think you are, God? I'm telling you, man, Genesis 1 is going to say, who do you think you are? Because I gave it to you. It was gift. All of it. Not only does God give the physical earth to all of mankind, he gives something called the tree of life. Full access. Perfect access to eternal life. There's nothing guarding that tree prior to Genesis 3. Full eternal life. What does that represent? It represents eternal boundless access to the healing power and presence of God. Nothing in between. There's just one rule in perfection in Eden, in the garden. Just one rule. You can eat from everything except what? The tree of, what's that tree called? The knowledge of good and evil. Oh, you, that's good, guys. That was good. The knowledge of good and evil. That's right. Now, we've got to turn our brains on to sit with this for a while. This is huge and has massive implications as to what God is trying to communicate to us about what it means to be fallen. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the story clues us in to what he's getting at. So this talking snake deceives Eve. Where did the talking snake come from? Well, no, no. 
all right? But here, this talking snake is throwing shade on God, all right? Causing Eve to question what? Read it. God's wisdom. God's good intent for you. That's what he causes Eve to question. God's not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. If you read closely, you realize that the serpent is creating an idea that God's holding out on them, right? FOMO, right? Right? And he starts by lying, straight up lying to Eve. He says, can you believe that God said you can't eat from any tree? (laughs) But God didn't actually say that. If you read the text, right? The serpent makes God's commands seem unbearable. The serpent makes God's commands seem unrealistic, right? Like he wants Eve to think, how can you survive under this God? Huh? How can you survive if you obey his rules? Archaic, antiquated, right? You can't survive. That's not living, right? And he does it by twisting God's own words. Notice, he implies the exact opposite that God says. God says, if you eat this, you'll die. And the enemy implies, if you don't eat this, you'll die, right? You're going to miss out, right? God's keeping the good stuff for himself. If you eat it, he says, it's going to make you into a God. Now, what is ironic about that? They were already like God. They were, they were already like God. They were already in the image of God, right? And the enemy is still doing the same thing today. We eat it up. Why? We eat it up. We start thinking that it's actually God's commands that are the obstacle to life, right? And if we could just do what we want, we'd be happy, right? We'd have joy, right? Tell me that's not what's happening, right? All the time in our lives. When we reject Jesus' teaching about whatever, forgiveness, loving others, lust, anger, aren't we thinking that's unreasonable, that's unrealistic. That's, oh, that's backwards. Like, that's overbearing, right? I'm going to be an unforgiving, raging, lust-filled person if I want to, you know? <laughs> or think about this. Uh, think about the sins that you just can't shake. No one has those here, but, you know, if you did, all right? Think about those things that you just, you're just like, man, why do I keep doing this? Like, why, why do you keep going back to that? Isn't it in some way... This weird idea that if you don't do it, you, can't, you won't make it? Isn't it in some way a, a sort of survival mechanism, right? And we think to ourselves, I, I won't make it unless I do this. I, I'll miss out, right? If I'm not continually looking down on others, how will I feel better? How will I feel good about myself? If I don't des- satisfy this desire, guys, listen to me. We think the world's over. We do. If I can't have that thing, it's over for me. And we turn into little five-year-olds with our desires, right? And think the world's not going to go on. If I don't get that thing. Now, I know none of you can relate to that, but I certainly can, right? And it's a lie. And so to justify our desires and unhealthy impulses, we begin to redefine, listen, what is good and bad. We begin to redefine what is good and bad. We say, I know what's good. I know what's bad. God, you have an idea of that, but I reject that because what I see is good, I want, and it makes me feel good, and I'm going for it. You have redefined good and evil. You have taken the fruits of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil for yourself. 
You've redefined good, what is good and what is wrong. Are we chatting? Is this making sense, right? I know, it's, I know lust is a sin, but right now, this just makes sense, right? I know unforgiveness is cancerous, but God, if you knew the whole story, like you'd lighten up on the whole forgiveness thing, right? And when we begin to define good and bad on our own terms and take what we want, things go south. So even though it's the snake that deceives Eve, it's humanity that acts. And notice the, uh, notice the evasion, right? Like Adam's like, oh, the woman gave it to me. And then Eve's like, oh, the snake gave it to me, right? Like everyone's just like trying to pass the bug, right? But in this whole narrative, right, God is saying, this is so intriguing. God is saying it's good, it's good, it's good. And then what does God do? He gives. God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, he gives. And then humanity calls the one thing good that God said is not good. And instead of giving, they take. Do you see the literary design? God says good, 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 and he gives. And then humanity says, that's good, and they take. You see? Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, same word, tov, Hebrew, tov. When the woman saw that the tree was good, it was a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise, she took. So God says good, 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 gives. They say good and takes. Now this pattern of calling something good that God has said is not good is on repeat for the rest of the Bible, right? On repeat. Genesis, literally Genesis 1 through 12 is the repetition of this pattern over. Not, and and I said, I'm gonna bend your mind a little bit today, not just on the earth. In Genesis 6, it says, this is crazy. I'm gonna throw it out there. I know it's just gonna like, it says the sons of God. Now in, the, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that phrase sons of God only ever means angelic beings in, in the Old Testament. It says the sons of God, seeing that the women of men, the, the daughters of men were good, tov, same word, seeing that they were good, took them for themselves. So in Genesis 1 through 6, it is not just a rebellion of humanity against God. It is an, an angelic rebellion as well. Heaven and earth both rebel. I know, I know we don't have time to go into it, but I'm going to tell you, it's just there. It's in the text, right? Not just an earthly rebellion, but a heavenly one as well. And it's all these created beings thinking they know better than God, calling something good and taking it, right? They take the knowledge of good and evil, redefine it to their likings, and the whole story, just read it, guys, I'm seriously, just this week, go read it. The whole story just spirals out of control, right? Cain, right, takes the life of his brother, Genesis 4 talks about this dude named Lamech, comes out of nowhere, and he boasts about killing guys for wounding him. And, he, and Lamech, first polygamist, takes two wives for himself, right? And that's not, listen, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's saying, oh, that's good, okay? Like, it's not, okay, it's not. After God gives, and, here, and here's where it culminates, right? After God gives every plant, every beast, all the earth to man, in Genesis 6, so all, all, all given to man. In Genesis 6, it says, then God saw that all of the intent of man's heart was only evil all the time, right? So then you get a Tower of Babel. I mean, the story just doesn't stop. Rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, right? Tower of Babel, the whole thing never seems to level out. What does it say about the essence of the fall? What does it say about sin? And, and you won't, you're not gonna be able to find anyone like outright that's gonna say this. Sin at its root is looking up to God and saying, I'm smarter than you. That is sin. Just looking to God and saying, I am smarter than you. I know more than you about what makes for human flourishing. That is the essence of sin. I know more than you 
When it comes to what secures and establishes my joy in life, God, thank you very much. The essence of sin is defining for ourselves what is right and wrong and preferring creation over creator, right? It's saying, I don't want you, God. I just want your stuff, right? And when we begin to define for ourselves and pursue what we think is right and wrong, the world breaks. The world breaks at every level and in every place. And this story that you see play out in Genesis 1 through 6 is on repeat in every heart, in every place since the beginning of time, right? If you just read it, it's abundantly clear. Things go south, right? Almost through concentric circles, if you read the whole thing, right? First in divine relationship, then in the family, Cain and Abel, then in the society, Tower of Babel, right? It's, it's like humanity is this car owner who didn't design it nor build the car, deciding, you know what, this car is going to run off pixie dust. I'm going to put sugar in the engine instead of oil, right? Like, go for it, dummy. Like, see how it works out, right? This is essentially what we've done. God has given us something beautiful. I mean, you ever been to the ocean? (laughs) You ever been to Colorado? You ever been to Montana? Beautiful. Huh? He's given us something. I mean, human body. Let's just get it out there. Beautiful. All right? So what? Yo, it's why we worship each other. It's why we worship each other so often. Why the Greeks were worshiping the human body. Indian culture very much. Hindu and worshiping the human body. It's the image of God, right? Beautiful. God gives it to us and we say, we know how this thing runs. We'll take it from here. Sin. That's called sin, right? And God made the human machine to run off intimacy and love with himself. And we've said, I know what this machine needs to run smoothly. More money. <laughs> That's what makes it flourish, right? I'm human, so I obviously know more than you, God. What makes humans flourish? Unrestrained autonomy. That's what makes me flourish, Jesus. Thank you very much. I'll take it from here. I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want, using whoever I want for my own desires. That's happiness. And the history books will prove it right. Hmm? We make ourselves into God. When we say, I know more than you, huh? Sin is simply humanity, humanity saying, I will be my own God. I'll let my desires decide what's right and wrong for me. So let's just pause. Let's just pause. If this is true, how's that worked out for us? <laughs> like, like, let's just look on the macro. Let's not even look at your own life. I ain't gonna push that. You know, I mean, just look at this historically. Like, what's human history said of our ability to create an earth where humanity flourishes? Now, before you get all like, well, science has extended the life expectancy and we beat polio and, you know, the bubonic plague, right? Well, okay, guess what else scientific advances did? It's a well-known fact that the 20th century is the most murderous century in recorded history. Prove me wrong. Some estimates say 187 million people died due to war in the 20th century. That's 10% of the Earth's population in 1913. Guess how we did that? You think Gatlin guns grow on trees? Somebody made that junk. Agent Orange doesn't come from oranges. We made that. Science made that. Huh? It was, it was scientific advances that made all that death and blood possible. Huh? I, I mean, I love science. Don't get me wrong. I watched this thing on the black, black holes this week. I was super into it. It's amazing, right? But guess what humanity did when we figured out how to split the atom? Killed like 200,000 people in a couple days. 
Guess what humanity did when we figured out flight? Well, we can travel around the world in like half a day. It's amazing. And then we can also, then as soon after that, we'll weaponize it and fly it into a skyscraper, right? The Bible's gonna say, aren't you glad you came to church today? Some of, some of you are like, dude, I brought a friend. Like, ease up, you know? <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's what I was given, all right? It's what we're talking about today. The Bible's gonna say, the issue with the world is not lack of science. It's not lack of education. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not lack of material possession. The Bible is going to say the problem in the world is not politics. Everyone ease up a bit. The problem in the world is not weapons. It's not even war or injustice. Those are all symptoms of a deeper problem. The Bible is going to say the problem is not out there somewhere. This is massive. Jesus said, y'all, it's from your own heart that comes evil. The Bible is going to maintain that the problem with the world is inside you. And it's like a sickness running through all of humanity, you and me included, right? It's called sin. And at its root is this predictable thinking pattern that we know more than God. So in the Bible, there's sins, that's plural, that's actions against God. But then there's this sin, singular. And what, what it's getting at there is that this is an internal reality. So, so you might commit sins, right? You might lie and be violent to your fellow man and bully and oppress, but those are just symptoms, it says, right? All of that is due to an internal brokenness. What Romans 7 is going to call the law of sin, which is something happening inside of you. Or as Matthew 7 and Luke 6 says, Im the image of Jesus gives us is a kind of tree. Jesus compares the human heart to a tree. And he says, there's an external reality to that tree, and then there's an internal reality to that tree. The external reality is the fruit. But the internal reality is what makes that tree bear its fruit. That's its nature. And what the fall has done, what the Bible maintains, is that the fall has broken that nature, bent it. It's as if humanity, and it's not as if, it is, that humanity was to be a mirror that perfectly reflects the glory of God. And what sin does then and still does now is it breaks that mirror, it shatters it. And only in fragments now can we reflect the glory of God, not in fullness, as, as a mirror dimly, huh? Remember that one? Now we see his glory that way. And now we reflect his glory that way. We can't fully reflect it like we were made to because sin, so you can pull all the oranges off of your tree and you can glue apples on there, right? But it ain't no good, it's still gonna produce oranges right? There's something inside you that twists how we think about the world. And the Bible's, that's what the Bible's getting at when it, when it talks about the fall, okay? So I mean, that in a fundamental cosmic way, sin fragmented the universe, not, not just me and you, but the universe. It's like shattering a mirror. Now, death and decay, that was what we read. Hold power over all living things now. Pain and toil entered, and if you notice, you read the text, it's not just humanity that's cursed. It's, it's all of creation. It's the land. Did you catch that? It's the land that's cursed. Now, the land is going to produce thistles and thorns. Now, it's so interesting. I'm just so caught up on this. It's almost a reversal of God's creation. God took the wild wasteland to Huvavohu, right, and made it a garden, right? And now in Genesis 3, the garden will become a wild wasteland unless man toils and sweats, right? In Genesis 1, in every... Yard owner was like, yeah, right. And Genesis one, no, did you read it? I mean, read it, man. Just read it. Just listen. Get yourself a cup of coffee, take a take a deep breath, and sit down with Genesis one through six. Just read it, okay? God took man from the dust, 
In Genesis 1, in Genesis 3, what does God say? Now to the dust you will return. Sin is a reversal of, of paradise in Eden. It's a reversal. That's what sin does to us, right? It doesn't make us free. It diminishes us. It turns us inward and we shrivel up and become unsubstantial beings who can no longer bear the glory we were intended for. Post-Genesis 3 world, we still rule. It's given to us. He doesn't take it back. But now we rule by oppression and exploitation without the influence and strength of God mirrored in every action. See, after the fall, we prefer creation over creator. We define for ourselves what is good and take part in cosmic rebellion. And every one of us, y'all, are guilty of doing this. No one gets out clean because it doesn't come with without, it comes within. That's step two of the gospel. Now, what does this do other than offend you and make you wonder why you came to church today, right? How does this affect us? If this is true, how does it impact how we see ourselves in the world? Well, if you think about it, this Christian truth should obliterate any religious superiority we may be tempted to feel over other people, shouldn't it? Amen. Well, it should, right? <laughs> This should create such humble, self-aware people who are the first to raise their hands and say, oh, it, I could be wrong. It could be me. I could be wrong here. I could be blind here, right? I might be off balance here. Like this dramatically should impact how we think about ourselves. Primarily, I'm not infallible. Christians should be the first ones to raise their hands and say, man, I, I could be wrong, <laughs> right? But because, because our self-worth is so attached to our rightness so often, right? For many of us, the two hardest words in the English or two hardest sentences <laughs> in the English language is I have sinned and I'm sorry, like some of us, I just want you to think about this for a second. When is the last time you said, I'm sorry? <laughs> some of you can't remember. It's literally the hardest sentence to say for some reason, right? Like, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? Why can't you say it, right? Well, probably because you've located your self-worth on your rightness instead of God's love for you in Christ. If this is true, right? If the problem is in me and tied to my pride, as scripture clearly states, it means, y'all, that the cat's already out of the bag, right? Christian or not, our natural tendency is to try to hide our imperfections and our failings. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did, isn't it? They hid, right? But if this is true, God's already outed you. Like, read Genesis. He's already outed you, man. Like, the cat's a, like God doesn't ask, where are you, for his sake. He's like, dude, he's, got, he's like x-ray vision, right? It's better than, right? He, he asked for their sake. He's giving them an opportunity to come clean. And today, I think some of, some of you, God is trying to invite you to come clean. I think God's trying, he's trying to say, where are you? So he's saying right now to you, where are you? Why are you trying to hide? The cat's out of the bag, man. You're not perfect. Why are you trying to put up fronts? Trying to act like everything's perfect. Like, cat's out of the bag. God is calling some of you right now. Stop hiding, right? This truth should also remind us why we need others in our lives. See, we need others. In, we need a commitment to spiritual community because what we understand is that sometimes, even most of the times, it's our own heart that's gone off balance. It's our own heart that's blinded us. And we need others who love us enough to confront us. This should impact the way we think about community and our commitment to community, right? And now think of how unpalatable all of this is in our day, right? Like the God of our day 
is our desires, right? Follow your heart, right? Be true to you. Pursue whatever fleeting impulse to the nth degree while everyone applauds you, you know? <laughs> Which explains <laughs> why we don't talk about sin or, or hell anymore in church, right? Because Christians are cowards and they fear the rejection of men more than they fear God. But what happens when we don't talk about sin, y'all? We're almost done. We're wrapping it up, all right? I don't get along. What happens when we don't talk about sin, Right? What happens when we don't talk about hell and the punishment of sin, right? And I, and I can understand, first of all, I can sympathize with the church for not wanting to present a God who is always condemning and, you know, sin and you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like we don't want to present a Jesus who hates and condemns because from his own mouth, he said, I haven't come to condemn, right? We don't want to present a Jesus like this. Let's watch this. Do you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you, I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. Time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. All right, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. It's ridiculous, man. It's vintage 21. These guys did that a while ago. <clears throat> I, like, I get it, right? Like, we don't want to present that Jesus, you know? You come to church and we're always talking about sin and condemnation. But what happens, y'all, when we let stuff like that or, or the history of our culture impact now how we walk out Christianity and what we talk about? Well, what happens when we don't talk about sin? Okay. Well, we become unsure what the problem is in the world right? and start talking nonsense like everyone else. Like the problem with the world is Democrats right? or, or, or politics or capitalism or those people. Right? That's how, that's how non-Christians talk. Christians know what the problem is in the world, y'all. <laughs> right? And when we start talking like that, we start contributing to the collective hate in society. 
right? When we refuse to acknowledge the biblical internal reality of sin and human brokenness, then we conveniently, conveniently locate the problem in the world out there somewhere, right? And we become prideful, we become arrogant, we become superior, violent, and even oppressive, right? But more than that, when we refuse to acknowledge the ugliness of sin, we have no grid or understanding for why Jesus had to die. R.C. Sproul says sin is cosmic treason, right? And when we refuse to acknowledge that we've taken part in cosmic treason, right, then the cross just seems unneeded. All that blood, all that suffering and torture, crucifixion, like why did he have to die such a gory, agonizing death? We're not bad people, right? And it just doesn't make sense then, right? Because as I heard one pastor say, when we are underwhelmed by our sin, we are equally as underwhelmed by forgiveness offered for that sin because we don't think we need it in the first place. Jesus comes to say, I've come to set you free. And the crowd goes, from what? <laughs> all right? We're all fine. See, that's what happens when we refuse to acknowledge the biblical reality of sin. And what about hell? I mean, we might as well, right? You're already offended. Jesus talked about hell a whole lot, right? Called it Gehenna, you know? Gehenna is this cursed valley southwest of Jerusalem. It's where people sacrifice their children in fire to other gods right? And it became this cursed valley, southwest Jerusalem, and it just became this burning hash, trash heap. People threw dead carcasses out there and trash, and it was just all this smoldering fire. And Jesus is saying, y'all, this is what happens when you reject God. Your soul stinks like death even before you die. And after death, well, where do you go if you don't want to have anything to do with God? Where do you go? If you refuse his forgiveness and his presence, well, God's not going to force you to be with him if you've told him you don't want to be with him. So you got to go to the other place. That's called hell. That's where men get their way. If, you, if you're okay with surrendering to the will of God, then, well, heaven's going to be great for you. But if you don't want to surrender to that, well, you, you can't go there. I mean, I mean, think about the person who refuses to let go of hate or malice or oppression or violence or explo exploitation. Can they be in paradise? No. They can't be in paradise. They got to go to the other place, right? C.S. Lewis says this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without self-choice, there could be no hell. If we are eternal beings, hell has to exist if paradise is ever to exist. Because they can't be there. And as unpalatable as these things are in our day, sin and hell are realities of the Bible. And if we become unable to talk about them, then we become unable to see God do his supernatural work of salvation. Because save from what? Right? So, with the apple almost still in Adam and Eve's hand, right? Like right in the shadow of the fall, God speaks of a rescue. We read it. It's literally in the same sentence as his judgment on humanity. He doesn't even finish the sentence before speaking of a rescue plan. He speaks to the seed of the woman. Did you read it? Did you see it? And he, and, he, and he talks to the snake. And he says to the snake, you will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. Now this sets the stage for God and his people. God's people would now be waiting the snake crusher. God's people are now waiting the fulfillment of this promise, looking for a messianic figure, a leader who would crush the head of the snake once and for all. And it sets the stage for God. This God who deeply loves this people, 
who will, on repeat, reject him. And now God's in a cosmic bind. Because how can he destroy evil and sin without destroying all of humanity? It's in them. They've committed treason of the highest offense. Everyone is guilty. They've rejected the creator to take hold of creation. They threw away the owner's manual and said, we can take it from here. So you've got to understand that when you ask God to come and end evil and injustice in the world, the question is now, how can he do that without ending you as well? Because you know, just like I know, that we have contributed to the evil and injustice in the world. We've acted selfishly. We've made others go without so we could go with. We have discluded and rejected so we could be included and accepted. We've acted in anger and even violence towards our fellow men, every single one of us. And if you're a Christian in this room, you've probably used your religion at one time or another to feel superior and look down your nose at others instead of serving and loving them. Because that's what sin does to us. It twists us. This is the fall. This is the second truth of the gospel. And if we don't sit with it as uncomfortable as it may be, then we will misunderstand God's rescue plan and ignore the very sickness Jesus came to heal us of. As much as I'd like to resolve this for you today, I cannot do that. Let's pray right where we're sitting. Jesus, I pray that you would make us brave, Lord, to own our sin before you, God. God, forgive us for hiding. Forgive us for evading Lord, I pray that we would invite you in, not just to forgive things we've done, but to uproot the whole tree, Lord, to change us on the inside. Lord, superficial fixes won't do. God, we need more than uh, moral reformation, God. We need spiritual transformation. And only you can do that, Lord. God, today we lament the brokenness of our world. Father, when we look at suffering our hearts can't help but break. And we mourn, Father, over the sin and the wickedness that this world has wrought, Lord. Help us see our great need of you today, Lord. Make us uncomfortable in our sins like they're clothes that no longer fit well. Help us, God. In your name we pray these things, amen. If you're able, stand with me. We'll come to the table.